Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to episode 32 today. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, busy busy week this week, bud. How's it going? Yeah, man, great week. I went out to uh, Midland to the Roseland Oil and Gas West Texas Conference. Was there on Tuesday, like I said. Saw some uh, familiar faces, so it was good to see everyone out there. It looked like they had a good turnout, so kudos to them. It was free to get in, so if you didn't get in, go check it out. You know, you, you should have. I think they've got another one coming up in the springtime, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, Josh. And also, Josh, as me and you were talking offline here, we got news that our show is now on your Amazon Alexa. We haven't checked it to verify this, but that's what we're being told. So just kind of a recap, that means you can find us on Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, Spreaker, which is um, where the show is hosted at, uh, globalenergymedia.com, and now um, iHeartRadio and Alexa. So if uh, check out the Alexa stuff and let us know, is it working, if there's anything. We can't really uh, fix it on our end. We're just told it, it pushed to there, so we're hoping that it turns out. But we'd love to hear back. Is the Alexa working? Ryan at globalenergymedia.com would love to hear that. And, hey, Josh, we haven't asked, I don't think, in a week or two, reviews. We would love a five-star or better review in iTunes. That really helps the show out. We see that our numbers are growing, so it looks like you guys are uh, enjoying the content. And so we'd love to hear back from you, and a review is an easy way to do that. Yeah, you know, Ryan, I was uh, I intended to check that Alexa app uh, about two days ago, and uh, forgot to get around to it. But uh, I, I'm curious. That's, that's cool, man. If we could get it planned on Alexa, that would be awesome. Yeah, and it's nothing that we did, Josh. It just, they they sent us an email and said, "Hey, you're in Alexa now." We're like, well, "Okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll take it. We'll take it." But I, I do know the iHeartRadio app works. Um, obviously, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, all that stuff works. We just haven't checked this out. But they sent us an email and said that. Uh, we're in. We didn't. I didn't even know we applied for it, but I didn't say no. So we'll we'll take it. So when you're cooking bacon uh, in the morning, you can now listen to us on your Alexa. So there you go. Well, Ryan, we are going to jump into a uh, the EIA report that came out. Before I do, just one little small piece of news uh, in Dilly, Texas. Uh, two people were injured in an explosion Tuesday. Um, not nothing too drastic, but uh, there was a a bit of a a bit of a a rig issue um, where a couple people were, were injured, uh, and this was uh, 70 miles south of San Antonio. It is uh, in LaSalle County. So that was Tuesday this week. I haven't followed up on the report. I saw it come out and just wanted to make mention of it. But the EIA report, Ryan, came out, and we and there's lots of information that we've been discussing about the EIA, how accurate they are. Um, how accurate their corrections are when they are off. Um, lots of information here. What were some of the big takeaways you had uh, that you saw in the article, Ryan? Yeah, and I think, you know, as you mentioned, Josh, we've been talking offline and with various peoples about this EIA debate. Um, I, I briefly touched on it with Mark LaCour on episode 100 of the Global Energy Leaders podcast. So if you want to kind of hear his thoughts on it, um, you can go there. But there's a lot of research we're doing behind the scenes on on the EIA data. You know, right here, they're looking for the crude oil uh, production is to increase for a good 2018. And, you know, Josh, even if you just take away the EIA data, if you just look at the, you know, kind of the 
just the the pricing where the prices are at. We talked about that a lot. And you look at just what's going on when you talk to people in the industry. Everyone that I know is excited for 2018, which mm. usually in the industry, when people are excited, you start to see money come out. And that's a good thing for us, right? We want, we want to see money going out and uh, being spent and drilling and laying pipelines. So everyone, I was out at the conference this week. Everyone I talked to said 2018, everyone's kind of getting that itch. They're getting excited. The question I think here is, and we talked about this before, is is this going to be an all 2018 deal or is it going to be th- something where early on we go out in 2018, we drill down the price and we're going, oh, not again. Now, I will say that I saw a report earlier this week that was saying that um, that OPEC is looking to extend their cuts all the way through 2018 or into late 2018. If that's the case and we don't get crazy over here, we could have a really good year. And we've talked about this, I think, this episode one, Josh. Just stability in the price. And I was really encouraged uh, talking to some folks this week. Everyone's kind of got that mentality. I remember when the price crashed uh, in 2014 and 2015, there was people saying, $100 oil, $100 oil. We want to see $100 oil. I think now everyone's kind of come to the realization, we just want to work. And if the price is stable, we can work. So, um, you know, the exports are up. Everything's looking up. And so it's looking like 2018 is going to be a good year. And I- I'm excited. I'm excited to see what happens. And, um Hopefully, it'll be a good, stable $50 to $60 year for us. Yeah, that would be incredible, especially if we can maintain that that price through maybe August, October next year. That would be that would be a, uh, a dream. I think everyone could really get geared up and have a, have a fantastic year. Yeah, and hey, right. Josh, r- real quick, just want to hop in there, and we're going to – I just want to throw it out there. I don't want to get into it today. Uh, we got Sergio and Bightman coming on, I know, but this is the EIA data debate that you kind of touched on there, just for the listener standpoint. Essentially, there's a debate that says that the EIA data is wrong. Now, for starters, it's wrong, and they admit it's wrong, and everyone knows it's wrong in this sense. First off, they don't claim to be 100% accurate, so it's wrong from that standpoint. The second thing is they go back and update their data. So when you look at the storage reports and stuff like that, they go back and update that data. So from those two standpoints, everyone understands that it's wrong. And we know, okay, what's wrong uh, by a margin of 10% roughly, and they go back and update it, and it gets a little tighter. Okay, good deal. So we all all know that. That's not the debate that Josh is talking about. The debate that Josh is talking about is saying that even after the corrections, it's, it's more off than that. Now... If you look at the debate and you kind of go, okay, well they are off. What that could that could really affect the price. And um, you know, we've been having discussions internally, Josh and me and Alfonso and some of the other folks at Global Energy Media, kind of figuring out what's our position on this because it's very complicated as far as you know who do you believe and why do you believe them. But uh, that's kind of the, the argument that Josh was laying out. I just want to touch on that briefly because uh, we kind of threw it out there and teased them. But we're, we're not going to get into that today. It's a very long discussion. And to be quite honest with you, um, I'm not really sure. I come down on the, the debate. There's good good points on both sides. But I will say this, as Mark McCord talked about in episode 100, um, I agree that by mid-year next year, we should know who's right because either the oil will be in storage or it won't, you know, Josh? Yep, that's right. Yeah. And and I'm, you know, that's going to be the question. You know, even if, even if, regardless of who's right, um, the question of, of this data and how it's being pulled and, um, you know, who's, who's the one that's controlling um, how this data is portrayed because, right. And there's always there's always people working behind the scenes, and there's always uh, there's always an agenda. And and you, if you if you look at that and you consider um, how these numbers affect the market or or what what they're trying to accomplish by publishing these numbers, you know, if if they show that inventory is low, what's that gonna what's that gonna do with the market? It's gonna increase drilling, and um, you know, so it, it's all kind of things to consider. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Josh, let me uh, let's see if we can get Sergio on the line here. All right, we have our good friend Sergio joining us back on the show today. Sergio, how's it going, buddy? Hey, good morning. Congratulations, guys, on the 100th episode for the Global Energy Leaders Podcast. Good stuff. 
Thanks, Sergio. Really, Thanks, really appreciate that. Well, uh, Sergio, you have a, a couple of articles that you did this week. Uh, the first one we're going to talk about is about Howard Energy Partners has a green light for a cross-border pipeline. Anything else you can share with us on that, Sergio? Sure, you bet. Um, so last year, um, Howard Energy Partners announced this, uh, this refined products pipeline. The concept was to move you know, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, all those good things from, uh, from the refineries in Corpus Christi down in Laredo, and then down on, into Monterey, Mexico. Uh, it's a big, wealthy industrial city in northern Mexico. And, um, you know, to do that, they need to obtain uh, what's called a presidential permit issued by the U.S. State Department. And uh, building pipelines is not a problem inside the state of Texas itself, but just when you're crossing the border, you need that permit. Mm. So they have to go through this, this lengthy process. And, uh, you know, earlier this week uh, on, uh, on October 18th, the State Department um, gave them a, a green light, if you will, like moving them forward to the next step of the process. And, and what happened is the State Department uh, released a, a draft environmental assessment. It's like where their folks took all the application material submitted by Howard and they, they kind of did their own review and then released this draft environmental statement. And, uh, you know, it, it's really given us a good snapshot of the project. And, and uh, more importantly, uh, the... Um, the uh, the State Department issued what they called a, a you know a, a Fonzi ruling and that, that's pretty much just giving them it's like a findings oh I forget the exact term findings of, of like you know no or little impact um, and so um, basically they're giving them the green light saying this project's okay you know it's gonna the pipeline's gonna go they're gonna use horizontal drilling to take the pipeline under the Rio Grande River and then up on the other side into Mexico. Um, the State Department essentially gave it a green light in this draft report, so saying that there's no impact to endangered species, no impact to the environment, to, to you know, to to neighbors, anything. So, um, this this ruling, this Fonzi ruling, kind of opens a 30-day comment period now, though. So, you know, the federal government is receiving public comment on the project. So far, no comments filed, but you know, we'll expect people to start start trickling trickling in by the end of the comment period and then it'll move to the next step after that which is a formal environmental assessment and then perhaps you know if everything goes well a permit for this project and sergio uh, does this start from corpus and go to laredo is that what i understand on this and so if so has that portion of the project been built or i wasn't really clear on this project on where where, where is it originating from uh before it gets to the border Sure. Yeah, you bet. It's um, it's starting in kind of like that refinery row area of uh, of the Port of Corpus Christi, you know. So there's three refineries there. You got Sitco, Flint Mills Resources, and Valero. And it's you know they haven't said who's a customer on it on this pipeline yet, but you know, huh, pick pick the three, if not all of them. You know, uh, you know, you never know. And uh, I haven't seen a T four um, permit filing yet from the Railroad Commission signaling that the construction has started. From, from this project, uh, I'll, I would have to double check on that. I, I do know, though, uh, from this draft environmental assessment, I did get a peek into how, what Howard's plans. And, and what, they're do, what they're planning to do is they're going to take the pipeline from Laredo to a, a refined products uh, storage terminal that's going to be built right off I-35, you know, just, just north of Laredo city limits. And so they're going to have that pipeline from Corpus to that terminal and then from that terminal to the border and then into Mexico. So um, 
that that's 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 what's been confirmed so far and they haven't started construction yet of that terminal that i know of so but i'll definitely be keeping tabs on it you know on, on that on that situation well sergio the uh the next thing we're look, looking at is uh endeavor makes first fuel shipment to mexico this seems to be some uh pretty big news here um any, anything else you can share with us on this Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so, you know, just like with the Howard energy project, um, this Endeavor project is related to the Mexican fuels market. And, you know, there's just so much demand in Mexico for things like gasoline and diesel and, and, uh, liquefied petroleum gas. Um, it, it just seems to be growing and growing. And, and this Endeavor project is, is, is an interesting little twist to that. Um, so, you know, Endeavor, they're a company, a refining company based here in San Antonio, but most of their refineries are, along the west coast and um so you know uh, logically uh what what endeavor has done is they've they've carved out a niche in, in northwest mexico you know baja california sonora all those places and um they're opening their own branded gas stations in uh in in that in that region of mexico the arco gas stations but you know these these gas stations you know need fuel to sell. So, you know, one of the things that Endeavor did, and it is historic because it's the company's first, first uh, shipment of fuel to Mexico. So um, there was a tanker, um, the, the Silver Hannah, and it loaded up with, uh, you know, gasoline, diesel, everything at the uh, Endeavor refiner in Ana Cortes, Washington. And then it went down to uh, just south of Tijuana to the port of Rosarito. And from there unloaded its product. And from there, it'll be distributed to the you know, to the, you know, company supported gas stations in the region. So, um, it's a, it's a big move and it, it represents, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of barrels of, of fuel moved in the single shipment. Yeah. And Sergio, we've talked about, you know, the Mexican market on here multiple times and Josh and I were talking before you came on that there's a lot of excitement in the U S market for 2018. And it seems like, you know, we're, we're Mexico's positioned, obviously geographically in relation to the U S that this is a really good relationship that's going really well. And I think we're going to see a lot more of these type deals as we go through this process, we get the permitting process, like you said, with Howard energy, we've got endeavor now, um, what are you hearing down there uh, apart from this about deals that are, we're looking for for 2018 for U.S. companies selling fuels to Mexico? Oh, it, it all looks good for the uh, for the U.S. refiners right now and downstream producers. Um, so um, you know, I mean, Mexico has six refineries, and they're they're old, they're decades old, and they have sagging production. So, and at the same time, demand for you know gasoline, diesel, all these things is going up. So, you know the the Mexico needs to fill that gap in it. And a lot of it's coming from, you know, producers here in the United States. So not only is it just Endeavor, but, you know, companies like Valero and Chevron and, you know, BP are jumping into the game. And, and just this morning, I was reading about the French company Total also getting into the Mexican fuels market. So it's not just the United States. I mean, you've got, you've got foreign players like uh, BP, Shell and Total now getting into the game too. Mexico's energy reforms um, open, open, open the markets wide open to foreign investment and competition. So it's not just from the United States, but but also from you know companies around the globe. Yeah, that's going to be something interesting to watch in uh, in 2018. There was a uh, there was an article you did, Sergio. Uh, I thought was really interesting uh, about frac sands. There's a, a new mine being developed around San Antonio. It's like 100 million dollars. Uh, just a, it seems like an enormous project's been undertaken there. 
Oh, definitely. Now, um, this company out of Pennsylvania, Preferred Sands, um, bought and set up a, a new frac sand mine just south of San Antonio, just outside a little town called Poteet, uh, which is which is most known for their strawberry festival. But uh, but now it might be the the frac sand capital of the evil for sale. <laughs> I mean, this is like one of like five frac sand mines in that area now. They're just the newest one to open up. And uh, it's a real interesting uh, uh, business development because, I mean, they're talking about a $100 million worth of equipment and road improvements and, and everything going in there. And it's a, it's a big investment and a big play for this company. And, um, but but it, it seems to be paying off. I mean, you know, the, the Eagleford you know, and, and all, of the, all of the United States went through the, the crude oil downturn. But, but one of the interesting things is that, you know, new drilling projects went down. But frac sand consumption went up, and that's because most of these drillers realized, you know, the more sand I'm using in the, in the hydraulic fracturing stage, the more oil I get out of the ground afterwards. So, so even though dr- new drilling projects were down, frac sand consumption just continued to climb and climb and climb, and and that's the wave that Preferred Sands is is trying to catch. Um, so they're building a uh, a frac sand facility there in Poteet. And then another one in the Permian Basin near the town of Monaghan. So they've got two projects at once going on there, and um, and it's uh, they're they're betting that 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 frac sand demand will you know continue to go up. Yeah, and Sergio, you've actually been on top of this. We talked about this, I think, either on the show or offline a few months ago. You had a story that that was uh, from a few months back that was kind of laying out this whole this business idea that hey, if you're in the business of selling sand, business is going really good. I do have a question that's that you may not know the answer to, but I'm just curious. So, for some of our listeners who may go, you know what, I'm in the oil and gas business. Um, man, I know some some people who have access to some of these sand spots. I'd like to start this. Is this a very permitted type deal where it's a lot of uh, hoops to jump through to sell frac sand, or is it kind of an easy business to get into well no i i mean i i there there it is regulated on, on two ends and um it but it is it is relatively easy because the uh you know you, you don't need a railroad commission permit for a frac sand mine you need one from the tceq they're the ones who govern these quarries and these uh, you know aggregate businesses um so you would need that and it has to go through a public hearing process and through everything like that uh, with with hearings and public comment and everything, but it's a relatively short process compared to some oil and gas thing. Like com- compared to like projects like refineries, it's really a much much shorter process, you know. And then um, the other regulation on the federal side is with that that new Obama era silica rule, you know. So you've got to mitigate for dust, and you've got to protect your workers for you know the silica in the air. Um, but, uh, but otherwise, um, most people choose to put these types of facilities near or next to, you know, um, you know, railroad, um, railroad lines. And, um, you know, this preferred sand site near Poteet's not on a rail line, but what they're doing is they're just going to have tanker trucks pull up and then just, you know, haul out the frac sand directly to the, to the drilling sites. It's, it's a good economic solution for like a 75 mile radius. So, um, but you know, you don't need permits to, to build it next to a rail site, um, either. So yeah. And one, yeah, one quick follow up on that, Sergio. Yeah. One quick follow up on that. Uh, as sure. we look at the, to the Mexican stuff we've talked about before is their infrastructure is so they're, they're, they're building it out and they're working towards it, but they're a long way away. 
are, are, are the frac sand something that can be you talked about railed? Is that are we seeing that being shipped down to Mexico as well? Is that another product that we're seeing that's in mass demand for the Mexican uh, economy? Sure. Yeah. No, that, that's definitely a possibility for Mexico because um, you know the way things are right now, uh, most of the Eagleford and Permian Basin get their frac sand you know via rail from like with places like Wisconsin and Minnesota. So you know, I mean, the mileage isn't any problem you know, getting it down there, um, you know, and, and there are, there are a, a number of cross-border rail lines, you know, I would see the most important one for Mexico being the, the railroad crossing Kansas City Southern or UP in, uh, in, in Laredo between Laredo and Nuevo Laredo. That'd be the smart bet for fraxing because it'd probably go to Monterey, which is, you know, setting itself up to be the natural gas and, and uh, hydraulic fracturing hub for Northern Mexico. So, and that, that, that railroad line from, uh, Nuevo Laredo goes directly to Monterey, so I could see that happening. Well, Sergio, we have uh, one last article: the drilling permit roundup that we love to cover uh, when you when you're on the show. This is uh, the Valley Crossing Pipeline takes another step forward. Um, so, wanted to go over that with you before we before we let you go. Oh, sure, yeah. Now, this is a good find. Now, as y'all know, every every Monday I go through and I look at the drilling permits that are filed over the past week and. And this was a good find. It's, you know, normally, um, you know, you, you cover these, these stories, you do them in these big batches, Sanchez Energy or Burlington Resources filed 20 permits for this, you know, this and that. But this is just a single permit filed by uh, the Valley Crossing Pipeline. That's an Enbridge project, a huge project, $1.5 billion pipeline from the Agua Dulce uh, natural gas hub near Corpus down to the port of Brownsville and then south into Mexico. Um, this permit was just for a cathodic protection well. Um, you know, and it's a good thing. There's a lot of, you know, people uh, who are concerned about, you know, the pipeline's impact on the environment and its safety. And then, you know, this permit's significant because, uh, you know, cathodic protection will, you know, guard this pipeline against corrosion, you know, and against accidents and ruptures and leaks and all that stuff. So it offered a glimpse into the company's plans, like, to, to protect it to protect their asset and to protect the neighbors there. So it was, it's a good step forward. Um, they started construction in April in Agua Dulce, and this permits all the way down in, in Cameron County, getting very, very close to the, to the finish line at the Port of Brownsville. So you can kind of see like that they've made th- that much progress already. You know, it's a, it's a good sign for this, for that project. Well, Sergio, we say it every time you're on that if you're not subscribing to the San Antonio Business Journal and you're in oil and gas or energy because you covered more than just oil and gas, uh, you're really missing out on opportunities, and this is one of them. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, oh, hey, before we let you get out of here, um, Cabot, did you get that Cabot update we promised this last time? <laughs> oh, I got to apologize. We just ran out of time for Cabot. <laughs> well, Sergio, it was good talking to you. We'll get you back on. We'll link to your Twitter and to uh, your articles in the show notes. Thanks for coming on, buddy. Sounds good, guys. Take it easy. Have a good one. And thanks again to Sergio for coming on. And please, if you do enjoy his content, subscribe at the San Antonio Business Journal. I will link to that in the show notes. And coming up next, Josh had to hop off, but coming up next still is David Blackman, who you can find all over the place, DB Daily Update, Shell Mag, Forbes, um, and plenty other places as he is always talking oil and gas and always is insightful. So without further ado, here's my conversation with David Blackman. Well, David, it's been a few weeks since we've had you on the show. It's good to have you back on today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Good. Well, 
Well, thanks for coming on. Let's get into it. Um, you have a piece uh, on Forbes.com, which you're a contributor at, talking about the EPA and the sue and settle racket, as you call it. Um, <laughs> what's going on with that? Well, uh, what's going on with it is it's about to all end. This is a, uh, a, a real true, true racket, almost like a mob operation in which these environmental groups have uh, conspired with the EPA and the Fish and Wildlife Service and other agencies over the years to uh, sue the federal government to get uh, their policy preferences enacted through the federal courts. And at the end of the day, after the federal agency settles up with them, the, the federal government pays their legal fees. And uh, so far, uh, over about $100 million, the federal government has paid out to these environmental groups over the years and, le- and reimbursed legal fees. So it's a racket that uh, Administrator Pruitt is shutting down at EPA. And I know Secretary Ryan Zinke at the Department of Interior is also going to shut it down here soon. Uh, with the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Fish and Wildlife governs uh, Endangered Species Act listings, and uh, that's a good thing because it, you know it's just not the way the federal government ought to work. So, uh, you know, for someone like me who doesn't follow this stuff like you do, help me out here. So, what would happen? It sounds like you're saying that uh, a suit comes out uh, from you know, you know, the Sierra Club or whomever, and the EPA just settles with them instead of going through the process. Is is that been because they were afraid they were going to lose in court? And would it be worse if they actually lost in court than settling? Yeah. Uh, so it, it's been a means at EPA of getting regula- regulations in place that are really outside the scope of the federal statutes and that Congress is not authorized. And so the EPA has not been able to actually, without court authorization, go through the regular regulatory process because the, the regulations or outside the real scope of what the statutes envisioned. And so what would happen is an environmental group like the Sierra Club would sue the EPA, uh, for example, to have uh, uh, carbon dioxide declared a pollutant. That actually happened through through the federal courts, not through the normal regulatory process. Uh, that was a result of one of these sue and settle suits. Um, you know, and, and that, of course, carbon dioxide is not a pollutant as envisioned under the Clean Air Act. Carbon dioxide is plant food. Um, but, you know, they were able to get the courts to rule in favor of the environmentalist group. And the EPA employees, when the court, the Supreme Court handed down its final decision on that, actually celebrated after they lost that lawsuit. They opened champagne at the, at the EPA building and held a party. Uh, that they had lost that lawsuit. So, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's just not the way regulatory process in this country is supposed to work. It denies interested and impacted parties their their due process rights, and it's a good thing that it's going away. And you know, it's stories like these that that are so frustrating because if you come back and um, you know, I don't know anybody in the energy business who isn't concerned about the environment. Now we, we may debate on what the best way to do that is, and there's extreme views on all that. But when you hear this type of stuff, it gets so frustrating because you know it's our tax dollars that are being wasted um, on these on these frivolous lawsuits. And you know, if you write a piece like this, I'm sure you've been attacked as saying, "Well, you don't care about the environment." And you kind of oh, a yeah. no-win situation when you're going, "No, no, I do care, but I just don't want them wasting you know millions." of dollars on stupid lawsuits yeah i mean it's just it's crazy it's it's uh it's very sad that it's been allowed to exist this all started 30 years ago so i mean it's it started in the first bush administration and is is uh uh remained a a part of the process all the way until now and uh finally this administration is going to 
uh, try to end it. And, and that's a real public service for the country. Yeah, and it sounds like if that was your business strategy to sue and settle, you might need to look for a new uh, a new revenue stream, huh? Oh yeah, and that's right. Now, Wild Earth Guardians is a great example. They're they're one of the main beneficiaries of this under on the Endangered Species Act. Uh, Wild Earth Guardians has been largely funded by sue and settle practices, and uh, I'm not sure what that organization is going to do now that uh, this is going to go away. Wow. Well, that's from your Forbes piece, which you put out um, regularly. I see you on LinkedIn and on Forbes, uh, Twitter, where I follow you all the spots, sharing that. I want to transition now to Shell Mag, where you put out um, a dozen things you need to know uh, in the oil and gas on a daily basis. It's always good, it's always good stuff, and uh, I've, I've taken a few articles from there. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes where you can find that at Shell Mag. Um, but for, let's start off with Port Arthur and what's going on down there. We talked about the impact of the Hurricane Harvey uh, you know, a month or so ago now. Um, you know, kind of looking at what's going on down there, there's still, if you look at the, the EIA data and look at the refineries, you say, okay, we're back to 88, 89% operating capacity, which is pretty good. You know, 93, 94 is a good number. So we're right there, but there's still people who are struggling from this hurricane. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, it's not just Port Arthur. It's all over Southeast Texas. Uh, you know, I, it's the media has such a short attention span that uh, ordinary Americans that were not impacted by these hurricanes tend to have it in their minds that, Oh, you know, a few weeks later, everything's back to normal. Well, no, it's not. And Port Arthur is a great example. They're having all sorts of health issues, having a hard time finding the materials to repair homes. Sheetrock is in uh, very short supply. And, you know, and some of the refineries, uh, oil and gas facilities also are not, as you mentioned, are not fully up to speed. And, and it's just going to take many months before everything is truly back to normal at these oil and gas facilities, and it's going to take years uh, before homeowners are, are back, you know, have their homes back uh, in many instances uh, to the uh, condition they were in prior to the hurricane. Uh, you know, a Rockport, Rockport's mayor announced the other day that prior to the hurricane coming through Rockport, there were 1,300 businesses in that city, and only 300 have been able to reopen. Um Wow. And a lot of that city is not going to be rebuilt. You know, it's it's and it's just it's going to be that way all over Southeast Texas, and the oil industry facilities are not immune to that. Right, and it looks like these these refineries down there, um, according to the article, that the companies are not only uh, pouring in money to expand, which will be job creation, which will help get the economy going again, but they're also giving money to places like the Red Cross. It looks like, uh, sure. according to the article, almost two, $2 million has been donated by the folks who are down there. So Big Oil is trying to step in in two ways, and that kind of gets lost in the narrative as well. If they expand, if they increase jobs, that helps the local economy, and they're also giving to causes that um, will go and affect the impact those rather than that weren't, you know, that aren't employees. They're going to, you know, donate to the Red Cross, which will give people food and water and all those other stuff. Yeah, and it's not just the donations. I mean, lots of the bigger companies, have, you know, have let their employees participate in in all sorts of rebuilding activities. Uh, you know, charitable rebuilding activities, in addition to, you know, making millions and millions of dollars in contributions to these organizations. Um, and companies, you know, companies don't tend to be uh, attention seekers in, in that kind of thing. They'll put something up on their website, maybe, to, to talk about the things they've done in their communities. But it's not like you have at, at these uh, oil and gas companies, PR people, you know, calling the local newspaper and saying, hey, our employees are out there doing this. Um, and so a lot of what they do in the communities uh, goes unnoticed. But uh, 
but they, they really are good corporate citizens in Port Arthur and everywhere else. Well, and that's what we want to do on the show, as we talked about before with you and other guests, is we want to make the industry, you know, humans. It's humans that are in this industry. We're people. We're doing stuff. We're helping our neighbors and our communities. Yeah. And so we want to make sure that we always touch on those stories uh, when we can. But let's transition. Hey, now. hey go, before go, we yeah. transition off of that, I'll just tell you a quick story. Uh, Shell, my God, Shell's doing so much. In, in, in the city of Houston uh, that is going unnoticed, and I became aware of it a few weeks ago and actually called into the company and asked if I could uh, interview someone to talk about it, and Shell didn't want to talk about it. So, right. Uh, but, man, they're just doing so much. It's incredible. Well, hats off to Shell as well um, to hear that they're, they're doing stuff. And, and just, you know, one, one kind of thing real quick, and we'll move on. You know, I was down in Houston last week. Um, I think it's the second time I've been since the hurricanes hit. I was down in Galveston. And, you know, you talked about the people moving on. And one of the problems is is that when you go to Houston, unless you go to certain areas, you don't see the devastation and the damage. And if you go to Galveston, there's basically nothing there that's been, you know, damaged that I could tell. And so right. you, you kind of go down there and you get the sense of, you know what, okay, it wasn't as bad as it was. And maybe – and so um, I, I, I want to say – I know what you're saying, that people move on. And it is kind of easy to move on if you go to this – the, if you go to the right area, if you will, where there's not devastation and destruction, you forget that man, there are people impacted. So we need to we need to stay on this, and I'm glad that you uh, you're following it and help us keep uh, remembering that there are people who are being impacted still to this day because it is easy to move on, even if you have you know good intentions. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Okay, well let's transition now. Exxon Mobil, they were late to the Permian race, if you will, but they are going crazy out there. It sounds like they are just every week. It seems like we've got an Exxon Mobil story. Um, you know, now they're acquiring a um, a terminal out there in Wink, Texas. I never heard of Wink, Texas. I guess it's Wink, is how you say it. But uh, I mean, I looked it up. I saw where it was. I was like, I probably drove through there a few times. But uh, I guess you never heard of the Wink sink. No, Wink, I have not. Wink is home to the biggest sinkhole in the state of Texas. Okay, uh, well, you know, okay, I've like seen the sink years ago. I've seen the sinkhole. I didn't realize it was in uh, it was in Wink. So, uh, but but Exxon Mobil, it looks like, you know. What, their business model, because they're integrated, they can do it all. You know, their downstream is making so much money that they're making really big strides out here in the Permian. Um, what is your kind of takeaway with, with their business model and what's going on with their Permian assets? Well, you know, they, they did a significant acquisition here uh, just a few months ago. Uh, a lot of new acreage in the Delaware Basin really increased their position over there. The Delaware is the southwestern extent of, of the Permian Basin. And, and this terminal, uh, you know, uh, which is permitted for 100,000 barrels a day of throughput, um, you know, is out there in the Delaware uh, part of the basin and is going to really help them in terms of storing oil and uh, loading it up uh, in preparation for transportation through the pipelines uh, down to the Gulf Coast to be refined. And, you know, a lot of companies just contract this sort of thing out, but Exxon being integrated, you know, they... They uh, do all of these things themselves, they, although they don't have a pipeline. But you know, so they'll be contracting with a pipeline. But you know, this oil is coming out of the Delaware Basin, and it's going to go through this facility. And, and and the other thing it enables them to do is, if the price is, is low, it, it enables them to store store a great deal of oil, waiting for prices to improve. You know, if if prices are really volatile at certain periods of time, so it just gives them flexibility you know, in terms of, of through putting their oil to, to be refined that that other companies just contract out. 
Yeah, and one of the things we talked about on the show, I think it was a week or two ago, was um, you're still seeing people buy acreage, and the question now is, is that acreage, you know, is it a good deal? Are there good wells there? You know, if the acreage has been, you know, how much has been developed? And, uh, you know, you kind of go with the theory that the company's going to drill the best wells first. So if they're selling this acreage, you know, what's left? But with this, what what made Genesis want to sell this? It seemed like this would be a pretty good profitable business to have uh, in the permit right now. So what made Genesis want to give it up? Uh, you know, and, and of course, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but there's just a lot of different situations. It could be, just could be that Exxon made them an offer they couldn't refuse. Um, or there could be uh, other aspect to this deal that's not being reported in this particular story. Right. You know, there could be some other part of this deal that, that we're not seeing. But, uh, yeah, you know, it does seem like a really profitable business to be in, and I'm sure it is at this point in time. But, uh you know, when, when you have a company like Exxon comes in and makes you a really good offer for an asset, you know, sometimes it's just the right time to sell. Right. And, you know, it's funny, David, I know you follow this stuff, too. So it's it's funny. You'll see that um, some of these articles that we covered one a few weeks ago, it was some company sold some, some acreage to someone else. And the article read that they could make money on that acreage for 20-something dollars a barrel. And the company selling was in bankruptcy. And you go, wow, like how did... How did you get the bankruptcy on wells that are profitable at twenty dollars a barrel, and this company's buying it? So it could be a deal like this where it's just bad management from uh, from one side. They need to unload it. I'm not. I don't know anything about Genesis personally. Well, it so could I can't be, say. Or, or it could be there. Yeah, or they may be just taking the proceeds from this and sure. paying down debt. I don't know. Right, the, right. The, the debt load of that company. But it's all. But it's a all, lot of times, companies sell assets just to pay down debt. And, right. Uh, yeah. No, you're right. It's always interesting to, to to kind of read some of these some of these little snippets that come out for some of these deals. You're like, oh, okay, that that's interesting. So I didn't <laughs> I didn't know if you'd see anything. I kind of did a little search. I didn't see much uh, speculation. I know I know Genesis stock is kind of down, but I would I'm not really I don't follow them, so I'm not really sure what's going on. But uh, last article for today, um, in Canada sees Permian land race coming to an end. This is a Bloomberg article. Um, the CEO there is saying, hey, guess what? Um, this might be the end of it. What was your takeaway? Well, and it may well be, you know, that we've, we've gone through a year of, of gigantic uh, divestitures and acquisitions in the of Permian acreage at, at prices uh, $40,000 per acre and even higher than that. There was one acquisition that was almost 60000 an acre. Uh, and that can't go on forever, you know, even as big as the Permian Basin is, it's geographically limited. Uh, we saw the same kind of thing happen in the Eagle Ford Shell in the 2010-2011 time frame where you just had this big burst of, of big acquisitions and, and, and just huge. I mean, back then it was 15, 20, 25,000 an acre, uh, you know, which is about the equivalent of 40 now. Uh, and, and just that kind of burst of activity is always, you know, has a very limited uh life and you know i think he's right i think we are at the end or you know not absolute end but getting towards the end of that that frenzy of acquisitions and investitures and uh now people are just going to be focused on drilling the acres they have yeah and you, you brought up some of those high prices one of the things we've speculated on the show before is is that we saw that that frenzy earlier in the year, but we might see kind of a round two next year or the year after where people are going bankrupt because they overpaid on tight margins and they can't make their, their money back up. What's kind of your thoughts on that? Well, that, you know, and that you could see some of that, particularly if the price stays soft. Um, right now we're sitting around 51 and, and, you know, people in parts of the Permian, the large parts of the Permian can make money at that price. Uh, but if it should soften up and go back down below 50, um, yeah, you could see another round of that because some of these acquisitions were, you know, 
the uh, companies loaded up on debt to make the acquisitions and are planning on, you know, cash flowing these properties to pay down the debt. So um, obviously, the higher the price is, the better your cash flows are going to be. And hopefully, uh, for those companies, will you know, prices will stay uh, at least at this level and hopefully increase a bit. Right. Well, David, as I mentioned earlier, we can find you at Forbes, Shell Mag, um, DB Daily Update is what it is, right? DB Daily Update, yes, sir. That's but we have we we've announced this once before, but we're going to announce it again. I think that uh, we're going to be doing a podcast. We we talked about it a few months ago, and um, you know, I had to do a sue and settle deal with someone to get you out of a contract, but. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. I'm uh, kidding, one, of course. one of those deals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. But no, uh, it looks like we're going to be doing a podcast that will be starting on uh, Monday. That we come out on Monday. So you want to kind of give a little breakdown for the listeners of what they can expect? Yeah, well, I mean, it's just going to be a weekly uh, uh, podcast, in which we kind of break down the week in longer form than we did in this 15-minute segment. Uh, take more time with it and go more in depth into. Oh, five or six stories uh, related to the oil and gas and energy space. Uh, some of it will be about policy and some of it will be about transactions just like today and the current state of the industry. And uh, hopefully it will be interesting to everyone who listens in. Yeah, and we won't talk just Texas like we do on this show. So we'll have right, a, yeah. <laughs> a little bit wider swath of information that we're going to go over. Well, I'm excited for it. And uh, we'll see you back on this show again, I'm sure, soon. And uh, thanks for coming on, David. And look forward to seeing you Monday when we record our first show. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Well, thanks again to Sergio and David for hopping on. Really appreciate their time today. And be on the lookout for our new show, which will be coming out on Monday. You can uh, find it at globalenergymedia.com when it comes out, or follow me on Twitter at Ryan Ray Sr. Until next time, keep climbing.